Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. So, Mark, today we're going to talk about corruption and why, specifically, it's more often linked to conservatism than many might expect. Corruption comes in many forms, not just the, what I think of as active corruption, which is what people typically tend to think corruption is, but also something that we'll define later as passive corruption. And for our listeners, this podcast is really a follow-up of the second one we did entitled The Changing Lilypad. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, we actually encourage you to listen to it before this one. We don't typically have these podcasts driven by current events, but I have to say that it was kind of timely when we decided to do this one that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine took place, which is, of course, a very sad and horrific event. But we're going to spend a little time today addressing the connection between corruption and what Russia is up to. So, Mark, asserting a relationship between corruption and conservatism is a bit provocative, I realize. So let's briefly recap what we mean when we use the terms uh, progressivism and conservatism. Seth, I tend to think of those terms as defining, in a way, how an individual views changes in their community environment. I think of progressivism as encompassing a tolerance or acceptance or a willingness to pursue change. Whereas conversely, conservatism is a matter of holding on to some kind of status quo. And by the way, I'm not trying to make a value judgment about one side or the other. I think of myself personally as a progressive, but I have plenty of conservative friends. So I'm not making a value judgment here. I'm just describing the difference between how I think one views progressivism and conservatism. Sure. And as we mentioned in earlier podcasts, it often, but doesn't always align with political parties historically. So for example, there are politically progressive institutions that actually act quite conservatively in many cases. And we'll get to those examples. We also mentioned in the intro that it's important we be clear about what we mean by corruption, because corruption itself is actually a fairly complex category. The classic example is some kind of dishonest behavior undertaken by an individual or an organization that has been entrusted with community authority, but the dishonesty comes about because the individual or the organization is taking advantage of that community authority to benefit their own self-interest. That's why we tend to think of bribery, self-dealing, establishing quid pro quos, that kind of thing, as corruption. Right. And as you hinted, though, in the intro, there's also a more subtle, passive form of corruption, which we could think of as sort of setting up or promoting or sustaining a system that benefits you personally, in a way, maybe unleveling the capitalistic playing field. You know, Seth, one of the things I find interesting about corruption is a very simple question, which doesn't often get asked, which is, why does it exist? Where does corruption come from? And in developing this podcast, one of the conclusions I've kind of come to is it's actually centered around humans wanting to gain the benefits of a high functioning community. We've talked about that in many earlier podcasts, that there are enormous benefits from having such a community and being part of it, but you got to have the community in order to get the benefits. Once you have a community, that community needs some kind of center of power or maybe multiple centers of power to regulate and sustain itself. But the problem comes about in that whatever centers of power you define and build are administered by, wait for it, self-centered humans. <laughs> right. And in an ideal world, we'd all just get along and share the significant benefits of being part of that community. But as humans, being smart, aggressive animals that we are, we're often tempted to cheat. Well, not me, but I understand a lot of other people do that. No, I'm, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Yeah, that, that's true. We all, uh, on occasion 
will slyly try to take more than our share of the community benefits, whatever those might be, for ourselves or our family. That's what we've talked about before as active corruption. But we could also be just sort of minding our own business and twiddling our thumbs going, we're going to prevent change from taking place because we already like the way the system is giving us more than our share and we want to preserve that. That's kind of a passive form of corruption. And, and both forms of this type of cheating are inevitable in some way, given our evolution is both individualistic and, and social animals. So it makes sort of feels corruption is kind of hard to manage, let alone eliminate, right? Yeah, I, I would really agree with that. I think it is very hard to get rid of and it's certainly difficult to manage. It's also important that we keep in mind, you know, we tend to talk about community as if there's one community. Communities are actually groups of human beings, and we all live in parts of multiple communities and we move from one community to another. So corruption can take place at any level of any community, and it can really involve any point on the political spectrum. We also need to keep in mind, Seth, that as communities get bigger, power and scale make it easier to hide corruption. So that's why I think you see communities generally, as they get bigger, try to enact and enforce transparency rules, particularly over any kind of public transaction. So let's discuss why does corruption manifest itself so much in politics, right? What are, what are its roots, fundamentally? I suggest we go back to what we've discussed in earlier podcasts about how humans view change. And as we've discussed, change is mostly desirable and in fact inevitable if we want to improve as individuals and a society. But as we also talked about in those earlier podcasts, we have to remember we all fear change on some level. Beyond that, we also tend to overestimate future risks when we're evaluating change. And we tend to have a heightened sense of false nostalgia for our past. But if change is this essentially unstoppable force, if you wanted to hold the status quo, you need some immovable object to stop it, right? <laughs> and of course, there's no such thing as an immovable object, but I think people try to approximate it. And it's also something, as we've talked about in earlier podcasts, that the fear of change, it's a wonderful resource for ambitious political leaders. It's easily exploitable because at some level, it touches everyone. So how do they do that? How do you create this immovable object that tries to hold back change? And I would postulate there's two things that you'd have to do if that's your goal. One is, of course, deny that the change is inevitable. And two, build a power structure to coordinate the efforts of a lot of people to try to make the denial self-fulfilling. Yeah, and one of the ways you can identify that that's happened or is in the process of happening is that the combination creates what we might call a bubble of misinformation which then can also be used as a center for exploiting fear and mobilizing support among voters into legislative and regulatory resistance to any kind of progressive idea that might try to combat the problem. Isn't this how we get objectively disprovable, quote unquote, alternative facts, whether it's about climate change, denial, fear of immigrants, the quote, war on Christmas, lies about COVID, COVID vaccines, and just a gaggle of conspiracy theories and many other topics? Yes, it is. Fear of change creates mistrust, it prevents any kind of rational dialogue, and it ignores or distorts otherwise irrefutable data. A classic example of that, unfortunately, being the big lie of fraud that we just lived through regarding the 2020 election. But we'll come back to that. There are unfortunately lots of well-known examples of corruptible power centers, but before we get to those, let's start with some less obvious ones to demonstrate that the potential for corruption isn't exclusive to just one side of the political spectrum. I know one that we could start with, Seth, that I think may strike people a little bit as a surprise because they're so commonly considered to be inherently progressive are labor unions. It's certainly true that the larger political goals of labor unions could generally be characterized as progressive, but 
They also quite clearly act conservatively in many ways, often the result of their trying to ensure predictability and stability for their members, which often requires convincing their members that maintaining the status quo, which is inherently a very conservative position to take, is in everybody's best interests. Yeah, that reminds me of what we experienced in San Carlos uh, with our own teachers union. And I talked about this story in previous podcasts, but we had gone through this larger strategic planning process to really think through, you know, how we would change teaching in the 21st century. And no one, including teachers, could thoughtfully argue that, like, for example, we should have a single category of teachers who all get paid solely on years work or all have the same work schedule or those people can be evaluated or even terminated in any serious ways. And yet, despite our conceptual consensus around the change, including, by the way, for most members of the teachers union, any meaningful reform was sort of derided as a non-starter by the union itself. So ironically, in this effort to minimize risk and uncertainty for their members, I think they're actually holding down opportunities for their members that they purported to serve. You know, the, I think, Seth, there's another example from a, another kind of union that fits into that mold uh, almost identically, and that's uh, police unions. Certainly, recently, there has been greater attention paid to those organizations as a dialogue has developed over police killings of people of color. Given the fact that the vast majority of police officers, certainly everyone that I worked with and met in my tenure on the city council, are good, decent, hardworking, honest, non-racist individuals, you'd think it would be in all of their interests to continually improve their practices and to weed out anyone any officer who didn't quite live up to the standards they wanted to uphold. And yet, police unions have largely rode in the opposite direction, opposing reform or making it difficult to implement reforms, and in many ways making life as a result more difficult for their own members out of a desire to protect all of those members. And I think of another example of a corruptible power center as, as sort of an ecosystem between policymakers and corporations and the ones that jump you know, immediately to mind are things what we call the military industrial complex or even the prison industrial complex, right? These are ecosystems that are dedicated to maintaining the financial rewards players can sort of reap under the current system, a kind of passive corruption that we talked about before. And they're really aided by this sort of feedback loop between those private companies and the politicians that don't do obvious reforms. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I've often wondered why in the 21st century we still have this institution of cash bail in a world where, quite frankly, a lot of people worry about there being too many and too inexpensive a set of tracking devices around to just keep track of everybody. Another thing that's kind of interesting when you stop and think about it, but it fits into the picture you were painting, Seth, is why do we incarcerate a far greater percentage of our citizens than any other industrialized country in the world? particularly when, if you think about it, at least on paper, we're dedicated to promoting individual liberty and freedom. Right. I mean, we don't even investigate the answers to these questions because even the discussion is thwarted by this group of collective power structures, right? Whether it's the bail bonds industry, the private prison operators, and all the politicians who then, of course, rely on their support, they all collectively have an interest in maintaining the status quo and effectively um, leveraging the public's fear of change to maintain it. Being in any kind of position of authority while serving your own self-interest, whether you're you know, an individual or a corporation or a complex ecosystem like, like what you were talking about, that's the very definition of corruption. 
But now let's get to the main course. Let's return to our more provocative assertion that corruption is more common on the conservative end of the political spectrum. Why is that? And let me propose this theory, because if conservatism has a raison d'etre, if you will, to hold back what is otherwise the unstoppable force of change, therefore successful conservatism must be very powerful. That reminds me of a classic military maxim, Seth, that it's always much harder to attack something than it is to defend something. Attacking forces, usually, I think it is the rule of thumb, have to have like twice or three times as much strength as the defenders in order to have a chance of actually succeeding. And that's a specific example of a more general principle. Defending anything is always much easier than trying to change something. And that amalgamation of very large levels of power on the conservative side risks triggering Bishop Berkeley's famous dictum that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But attempting to keep tomorrow looking like yesterday carries significant risks, right? Because we talked about you often shun science and intellectual curiosity and learning because all of those things sort of threaten to teach us new things and potentially modify our perspective on the world. Sadly, it also has the potential for demagoguery, appealing to individual desires and prejudices at the expense of other individuals who happen to hold less power within the community. And if there is an epitome for this phenomenon, it has to be Fox News. And clearly has been documented by many sources. Uh, Roger Ailes was not just a sexual harasser. Of course, he was and he was terrible. But more than that, he was just a fundamentally corrupt human drunk on his own power. Right. In order to maintain his position, he continually had to wield his enormous influence on his own staff and on politicians, all while his organization repeatedly gaslighted his own viewers. <laughs> You know, Seth, every time I write the term Fox News, I always put the news in quotes because they have almost nothing to do with news as I traditionally understood it. And let's be clear, it's not just that Fox has a political point of view. Everyone, every organization, every media network has a political viewpoint. The problem is that Fox created a fundamentally dishonest media organization so as to enable their corrupt power and reap the benefits of it. They built and maintained a bubble of misinformation. We've talked about how that's important before. They don't follow or support normal journalistic approaches and scientific inquiry. And unfortunately, their actions are made even more effective because of a feedback loop and a symbiotic relationship between conservative media outlets and self-serving politicians, generally on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. Ultimately, it's why Chris Wallace said he left Fox. Although I will point out that his moral clarity that came to him recently just came after he had already earned a significant amount of money from Fox and also secured a new job. One of my best friends in high school actually worked for a number of years as a news producer at Fox. And he told me that a lot of times the producers would kind of cringe at the stuff that they were producing and putting on the air. And that would always result in them being reminded, usually by their colleagues yelling across the room, you don't have to believe what you're selling, you just have to sell it. You know, the irony is that we are connected better to more facts today than we ever have been before. And yet the anti-science movement has made such incredible inroads into our politics and public policy. That itself is really a testament to the extraordinary power of conservatism. And I think there's no better example of that than our U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, Jim Inhofe. He, look at it this way, he wasn't laughed out of the room in 2015 when he brought a snowball into the Senate to disprove that the planet was warming. I mean, it's shocking. <laughs> uh, yes, you're right. On one hand, it's really funny, but it's shocking is really the reaction you should have. You know, look, we all understand and accept that politicians from all political sides and all political parties engage in spin. That's just part of the business. 
But I got to say, leaders like Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're just beyond the pale. They lie about the elections. They lie about insurrections. They lie about pandemics that are killing people. They lie about critical race theory. The list never seems to end. Yeah, it's like a murderer's row of corruption, right? <laughs> and let's not forget in more recent news, I mean, Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court justice who actively supported litigants that would appear before her husband's court and also actively supported an insurrection. And not coincidentally, her husband, Clarence Thomas, was the only one on the Supreme Court who voted against the January 6th commission request to get records from the National Archives. If that's not corruption, I don't know what is. You know, and worse yet, the increasing level of anti-intellectualism in our society that's being fostered by the conservative side of the political spectrum and the lack of critical thinking on the right really has also made them increasingly susceptible to foreign manipulation, like by our good friend Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But to be fair... People will properly note that Seth and Mark uh, have a certain bias, and that's fair. We understand that. Uh, so let's talk about the fact that maybe progressivism could theoretically pose the same risk. So isn't MSNBC the same as Fox, just on the other side of the aisle? Um, but Mark, I would suggest no, even with my bias, because progressivism is sort of by definition open to change and hence new ideas it will be different. It will act different. And hence, an MSNBC, although may have a political viewpoint just like Fox does, is going to act very differently than Fox does. I think the evidence, at least if you try to look at it objectively, in fact, demonstrates that, Seth. MSNBC, just like Fox, tries to capture eyeballs because they both want to sell advertising. But MSNBC doesn't tend to create a power structure to distort reality in order to maximize their capture of eyeballs. They also tend to do a much better job of following longstanding journalistic principles and, and practices. They also see themselves as independent of the political machine. They don't have an arm in their organization that is connected to the government itself. Unlike Roger Ailes and Donald Trump or Hannity Trump, there isn't any Maddow Biden phone call that takes place every night. In the end, right. <laughs> they, MSNBC is far more likely... At, to admit when they've made a mistake or presented wrong information or data than Fox ever has been. But yet when many conservatives sort of faced with these facts and this difference seem to like resort a lot to this whataboutism, right? And it's a very weak defense. Whataboutism has always struck me as uh, an example of, gee, obviously you don't have any more substantive arguments to make, so you're using a kind of nonsensical argument instead. Uh, that is not a very good sign of the strength of your arguments. And this asymmetrical occurrence of corruption can appear not just on an organizational level, but on a personal level. And I always wondered if it's my imagination or if it's my personal bias. But when it comes to sort of like personal scandals, you know, for politicians and other, you know, famous and powerful people, whether it's marital infidelity, drugs, sexual assault, financial misdeeds, fraud, perjury, what have you, these things seem to afflict conservatives more. And there don't seem to be distributed randomly throughout the population. <laughs> you know, I always had that impression, too. Uh, but I have to admit, uh, I was shocked at some of the stuff you dug up for this podcast. Right. I mean, I just, you know, even combing through in Wikipedia, the list of all the sex scandals by federal officials in the last decade, 68 percent of them were committed by Republicans. And even before Trump, who obviously accelerated the numbers I'm going to cite here greatly, in the 56-year period between 1961 and 2016, when both parties each held the presidency for 28 years each, it turns out that GOP administrations had, wait for it, 38 times more criminal convictions than Democratic administrations. Yeah, and it's most amazing. And again, 
even certain Democrats who are very conservative. Let's talk about Joe Manchin, especially recently stories from New York Times and, and other outlets about his ties to the coal industry, even back when he was a West Virginia state senator. It's actually pretty shocking in scope. And he's a Democrat. But guess what? He's actually quite conservative and is a big fan of the status quo. I think what this tends to show is that if you have power within a community, you're always going to be tempted to use it for your own ends. And as we've outlined above, conservatives inherently have more power within most communities as a result of human nature and how people generally tend to fear change. Yeah, and there's certainly been a similar dynamic for conservative leaders in other spheres besides politics. And with the risk of pissing off some of our listeners, you know, we can talk about religious leaders and particularly when you're the type of person who tries to impose their morality on others, which is sort of a common factor in fundamentalist type beliefs. Any scandal is aggravated, right, because of the hypocrisy, whether it's Jim Baker stealing money from his religious followers or Jerry Falwell Jr. having an extramarital sexual scandal while simultaneously preaching hardline morality. I mean, the list goes on and on. On the other hand, I can't recall a scandal involving leaders of the Unitarian Universalist Church, likely because its leaders are constrained by their religion's own precepts from exercising power over their adherents and the fact that their religion is inherently inclusive and progressive. You see this dynamic in repressive regimes around the world, some of which are religion-centered, and, and but some aren't. Unfortunately, we happen to have a fantastic, if I may use that term, recent example of this type of thing at home, Donald Trump. Now, let's be clear. Bill Clinton also had a famous scandal, but the tone of it was really quite different. It was an example of corruption, no doubt about it, in that he used his power as president for personal ends. Right. But imagine if Bill Clinton's goals were not just to enjoy some personal benefits of presidential power, but to use that power to hold back the tide of change or to serve his financial interests. That's true. History is filled with examples of officials from across the country and from across the political spectrum having some level of corruption. But it's mostly personal and it's generally distinct from some genuine layer of public service. Right. And this is where Donald Trump was fundamentally different. Right. He never hid the fact that he had no interest in public service. He, he flaunted his corruption. Yeah, I can remember him saying about and arguing about how the G7 should stay at his resort in Florida because it's the best. He just sort of fabricated this alternate reality that's just unmatched in modern history. Right. He could contradict himself, be shown the tape of it and still deny that he even said it. More broadly, you know, his entire career, and in fact, from what I know of it, his father's career before him really took advantage of corrupting centers of community power in order to improve their lot as individuals. Interestingly, though, Trump wasn't a conservative in the classic political sense, but rather an opportunist who seized the conservative political movement, perhaps because it was so corruptible. Which is why so many traditional conservatives, I suspect, initially opposed him, either out of principle or because they feared he would cut them out of their own grabs. And certainly Trump was helped in creating his own bubble of misinformation by the aforementioned Fox News, who in turn benefited from his support. And it was really unprecedented how many Fox News celebrities ended up working for the administration, coincidentally. And although, as I just said a second ago, he was initially opposed by many Republican leaders, it was really interesting about how they all turned on a dime to support him in his public role once they saw that he could bolster their own personal power. That's the very definition of corruption. 
you're just telling us that corruption is contagious, right? Because it could become normalized, whether it's Trump and his cabinet members or Putin and his cronies and a whole bunch of other groups. Yeah, and sadly, when it becomes normalized, however that happens, there's an even greater incentive for more corruption to take place. Among other things, it creates a prisoner's dilemma, like what we've talked about in an earlier podcast. You know, he effectively convinced many groups to corrupt themselves. I mean, we had a situation where we had a group of evangelicals who agreed to support this terribly well-documented, unpious individual. Yeah, or a lot of uh, so-called patriotic organizations ending up supporting a man who not only denigrates those who serve in uniform, but sides with our country's enemies, including Vladimir Putin. Yeah, he even duped his own supporters to fund activities that he funneled right back into his own business, out in the open. He demonstrated, Seth, I I think we'd agree, a nearly endless list of corrupt activities— you know, changing government policy to benefit his own businesses. I mentioned about encouraging foreign leaders to stay at his hotel, but it went beyond that. Making U.S. government employees stay at his properties when they traveled overseas or marking up the prices on on those properties that were charged to the U.S. government. Yeah, he solicited foreign assistance, right, from Russia in his first campaign for president and clearly used the power of the U.S. government when he threatened the leader of a foreign nation, Ukraine, right, to booster his own political prospects for the next election. He encouraged and condoned multiple violations of the Hatch Act, which is a federal law that makes it illegal for any federal official to engage in certain types of political activities. And he even changed the policy at the U.S. Postal Service to support his own election campaign. He interfered in Justice Department investigations that involved him. He pardoned numerous people who were convicted or would have been convicted of corrupt activities. On top of all of that, there were a lot of examples of just over-the-top nepotism and an unprecedented number of scandals involving his cabinet members, not to mention, as uh, I think various news media organizations documented, something over 3,000 identified conflicts of interest. And let's not forget that he fueled a mob to attack Congress to overthrow an election and preserve his power. Which is a nice segue, unfortunately, into uh, what has been characterized now as the big lie, his mischaracterization of the 2020 election. You know, Hitler first used the term big lie to describe something so colossal that no one would believe that someone, quote, could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously, close quote. Sadly, Hitler's insight was both brilliant in its simplicity and easily actionable. You know, kind of like Fox Mulder, many of us just want to believe, even if it isn't true. Yeah, and he applied Hitler's insight by doing things so badly and lying so blatantly that he normalized what otherwise would be the unthinkable. He, in some way, is the boiling frog personified. You know, Seth, even his response to what could have made a shoe-in for re-election, how he handled the COVID-19 pandemic— demonstrates his corruption. Yeah, I know. Instead of mobilizing the country, which he could have done, he just chose to deny, 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 even though, as we know, he told Bob Woodward, he knew otherwise what was going (laughs) on. And because he was motivated by fear, you know, fear that it would look bad for him. Um, So instead of being a leader and following science, he downplayed the truth. He mocked scientific inquiry and recommendations and made bad decisions across the board. Ultimately, not only did it hurt the country dramatically, of course, by just the incredible number of deaths, and sickness we had in this country, but it ultimately hurt him. Among the other examples of, of Trump's corruption, Seth, is the fact that he also echoed behavior from autocrats, both past and present. And let's talk about autocrats, because they're corrupt by definition, right? Whether it's historical figures, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, or current ones, Putin, Xi, Lukashenko, Kim Jong-un, 
they all must be corrupt to keep their power. Yeah, generally by promoting an alternative truth narrative of some kind. You know, they all claim to take actions because they care about their nation and their people, but they blatantly take actions that clearly don't benefit either of those and really only benefit themselves and their cronies. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the current news and Vladimir Putin, because he feels like the current poster child, right, for corruption. It's all about his own power, his own wealth, and supporting the power and wealth of all those around him who then, of course, support him, clearly to the detriment of the people he purports to serve. And he shuts down dialogue and dissent in his own country to an extreme. Is it any surprise that, as has been well documented, Putin's own people lie through their teeth to him, just like Trump's did to him? Because, frankly, uh, it's self-defense on their part, even though in the long run, it's not in the autocrats' uh, interest for them to do that. And Putin has his own version of the big lie, right, Mark? He sure does. The alternative history of Ukraine that he keeps spouting, he claiming threats that exist that really don't playing on the very real fear Russians have of being overrun because historically, you know, there are just a few natural barriers to keep them from being invaded and playing on Russian nostalgia for when they were a superpower. Even though personally, I find it hard to imagine anyone who lived through the Soviet communism thinking that they were better off back then than they are today. And one of the stranger turn of events in the U.S., Uh, in the last decade was how Trump further corrupted the Republican Party and conservative media to support a guy like Putin, right? And they built this sort of cozy relationship between the two men personally, you know, and Trump sided with him about Russia's role in election interference. And now there's this sort of alliance between Putin and conservative media that has sort of led U.S. conservative media to support Putin. And it's sort of this wild example of the corruptibility of Fox News and folks like that. Even more sadly, I think you can draw a straight line between Trump's corruption and the invasion of Ukraine. He gave legitimacy to Putin and he denigrated Zelensky. He weakened NATO and certainly gave Putin the impression that the U.S. wasn't a full-throated supporter of NATO, which couldn't have been a good thing in terms of NATO trying to act as a deterrent. Right. So why is anyone surprised that the leading American on Russian state TV used in their propaganda efforts supporting the invasion is Tucker Carlson? Right. I mean, Putin specifically directed Russian media to feature him. Uh, Why are we surprised by this? You know, there's another interesting parallel too. guess how Putin is clapping back against worldwide criticism of his invasion. He is literally claiming it's an example of cancel culture. Well, he clearly did listen to the last episode of The Boiling Frog. (laughs) Well, Seth, now that we've managed to show why the world may be returning to the brink of nuclear annihilation, let's try to end the program by offering our listeners some advice on how they might make things better. Well, we're going to repeat some stuff that we talked about in an earlier podcast that I think, frankly, we'd all be better off if we are more open to change um, and recognize the risk of trying to keep the world from changing. And because this conservative power that has to be created is just frankly more easily corruptible. It's also worth remembering that even though self-interest is always at work and therefore we should always be suspicious, perhaps, of other people's motives as well as our own, we can't let that turn us off from working to make the system better. As a favorite author of mine once observed, sure, the game may be rigged, but it's the only game in town. If you don't play, you can't win. Well, but when you're playing, it's probably always a good practice to ask yourself why. You know, why does someone have a certain position on an issue? Is it a genuine belief in something that will make the community better? 
Or could there be some self-interest at work? And whether that's a politician, whether that's someone in the media, whether that's a business, that's always a good question to ask. And speaking of politicians, beyond what you can do as an individual, it probably really would help if we all focused on electing people who embrace the kinds of approaches we're talking about here so that those things could be followed on a larger scale. And I think more specifically, we could promote policies that increase trust and transparency to reduce the potential for corruption in all branches of government, right? Whether it's executive, legislative, or as we've referenced, even the judicial. I mean, I'm a big fan of figuring out a way to get money out of politics. I know this is a really complicated issue. Mark, you and I have talked about this a lot. So it's definitely a topic for a future podcast, just as the concept of gerrymandering figuring out a way to improve and reform the way we draw districts, but also a very deep topic and very complicated. But also there's all kinds of other transparency and anti-corruption regulations for public officials. For example, I was so naive that I didn't even realize that elected representatives in Congress have the ability to own stocks, let alone trade them. That's shocking. I mean, we have to end those practices. That's what makes us not trust our elected leaders. Uh, so these types of transparency regulations are absolutely necessary for us to move forward. I can certainly understand, Seth, and I think you'd agree with this, that it wouldn't surprise me if our listeners may think that the problems we're talking about addressing here look hopeless. But I got to say, I believe that over the long run, while conservative corruption can be successful for a period of time, it is doomed to fail. If for no other reason that circumstances are going to change, the world is always changing in unpredictable ways, and that will undermine the self-interest that those engaging in corruption were seeking to preserve, provided that people stand ready to take advantage of the openings that get created by change. And I understand that. I'm probably a little more pessimistic in general, but I agree that I don't think things will end well for either Trump or Putin. At a minimum, I think whether Ted Cruz's and Tucker Carlson's children will probably be embarrassed, at least for the rest of their lives. Well, Seth, you know, I'm not sure I'm necessarily more optimistic than uh, than you may be. But what I always try to remind myself is there's an old aphorism. Optimists may be right no more frequently than pessimists, but they have a hell of a lot more fun getting there. And that's what I try to live by. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Well, Mark, that's a good place to end, and, and that was really a fun discussion. Uh, we may get a little bit of hate mail for this podcast, but I think it's still an important topic that I think people, frankly, are afraid to talk about. I agree, Seth. There are really a lot of layers to understanding all of these connections, and I hope we've done a, a decent job of outlining them for our listeners. Of course, there's always more to save for future podcasts. I look forward to it. Uh, so signing off, this is Seth and Mark, hoping you will embrace and not be corrupted by this podcast. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.